helps us understand how we can live our lives now in the light of that future, confront our weaknesses now in the light of that future, serve God now in the light of all that God has prepared for us. So we'll look at these verses under three headings. First of all, uh, verses 6 to 18, I've called it the reality of eternity. The reality of eternity. You probably know in these three verses, Paul sets up three contrasts which describe true reality as far as as he's concerned. The reality of what really matters. And it's this perspective which leads him to begin, therefore we do not lose heart. What are the three contrasts? Well, they appear in verses 16, 17 and 18. Number one, the first contrast, is the contrast of outward decline and inward renewal. So outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Now, you don't need me to tell you that despite our best efforts, this trend is irreversible. You can try jogging, or aerobics, or slimming, or hair colouring, but I'm afraid to say that the reality of verse 16 is true. Outwardly, we are wasting away. We cannot halt this decay. Sooner or later, all of us turn to dust, I'm afraid. And as Paul thought about his own experiences in this letter in 2 Corinthians, he describes many of the struggles that he's had, physical challenges of all kinds, suffering, which he describes carrying in his body the sufferings of Jesus. Perhaps his own physical life began to feel very vulnerable, very frail. And so in contrast to the decline physically, it leads him to emphasise the renewing power of God. Earlier in the chapter he talked about this uh, weakness and power. Well, here he's doing it again. Outwardly, in terms of his physical frame, there is a decline. All of us know that reality to a, a greater or lesser, uh, a lesser extent. But inwardly, he said, it's possible to be renewed day by day. In other words, it's important to remember that we Christians live our lives in two dimensions at once. We live in this world, so we experience all of its joys and all of its sorrows. We're vulnerable to its pain, just like anybody else. But inwardly, we Christians participate in the world to come. We've been born anew. We participate in the world of heaven, the world of glory. So by the Holy Spirit, being born again inwardly, we now live our lives in another dimension. So this inner life, this life with Jesus Christ, which chapter 4 talks more about, this inner life can keep on growing. It can become fresh. It can can become vital. It can become powerful. It can be gradually transformed day by day into a much more energetic life. So the frailty that we experience outwardly as we grow older becomes the opportunity for growing inwardly by God's power. It's a wonderful contrast. And of course, this contrast is often seen in older people. I'm looking forward to uh, meeting the resident of Brula, but I know many Christians who now creep into their 70s, their 80s, maybe even their 90s, who demonstrate the reality of verse 16. Sometimes older people, as we know, can become rather sour and bitter. Their horizons shrink. They think only of their personal life, their own concerns. But Paul is saying, no, the opposite can happen. When I was a student uh, some years back, I used to every week visit an elderly man in the city where I lived. Uh, He was 84. And he kept on thanking me for my friendship and for my visits. But actually, I was the one who benefited from that opportunity to visit him. Because to hear him describe his prayers for the world church, to hear him describe his hopes of heaven, Uh, to see the way in which he was maturing uh, uh, as a believer, that was deeply encouraging to me as a young Christian. 
And that's exactly what Paul is describing. You see, this outward decline may be obvious, but the inner renewal of this man I used to visit was one of the most impressive features of the real Mr. Perry, the man I saw. So the inner renewal doesn't uh, happen uh, just automatically. We need to work at it, Paul says. He says in verse 16, it's renewed day by day. And uh, we need to give just as much attention to the inner renewal of our lives in Jesus Christ as we do to the care of our outer bodies. So there's the first contrast. The second is in verse 17. Present trouble and future glory. Our lives and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Um, Paul uses that a fair degree of understatement, don't you think, when he talks about his afflictions. He knows his Corinthians. He gives catalogues of the sufferings which he endured. And yet he describes them here as light and momentary. His sufferings were real and painful. He was close to death in his service for the Lord Jesus. But that suffering, however painful, is only for this present life, Paul says. And compared to everlasting glory, it is insignificant. In fact, Paul does more than uh, compare those things. He actually indicates that suffering achieves something for the future. Uh, Maybe it should be linked with verse 18, where we're told to fix our eyes on the eternal. Our ambitions, our efforts, our goals, our perspective is on that future day. Um, I studied geography at university, and one of the things we had to do on a number of occasions were field courses, and one was to North Wales, and we had to climb Cabot Idris, if you know that mountain in North Wales. Um, you can tell I, I even struggled getting into the pulpit. So mountain climbing is not really uh, a, a, a great gift that I have. I had polio when I was a kid. So anyway, I did my best to climb Cadder uh, uh, Idris. And the geography professor who was with us had a great ministry of encouragement. And he kept saying, he was walking alongside me up the mountain, up the rise after rise, and said, well, Jonathan, when you get to the summit, when you see the view from the top, it's fantastic. It's really worth the effort. And he kept on inspiring me in this climb by the uh, vision, the perspective, the wonderful view from the summit. And so it was. By the time we got there, I'd forgotten the struggle of climbing this mountain because of the wonderful vista. Now, I think that's the kind of perspective which Paul often gives us. Our hope of heaven helps provide the perspective on our present struggles, our present suffering. So in the same way, he says, our home in heaven is absolutely guaranteed an eternal glory that far outweighs all of our struggles. Earlier on, he talked about the pressures weighing on this in chapter 1, the weight of trouble. And now he says, well, that's nothing compared to the weight of glory which I'm going to experience when I get to heaven. Uh, he talks about these uh, pressures of just being momentary, whereas the glory will be eternal. So it's a wonderful contrast which he paints there. The third contrast is in verse 18. And it's the contrast between the seen and the unseen. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, of course, this is difficult for us to understand. In the 21st century, our world places a great emphasis on what is seen. And we Christians find it rather difficult to think differently. At least I think that's the case. For many people around us, the prevailing philosophy is uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and watch telly, as we say these days. Uh, For tomorrow we die. In other words, you maximize on your present experience. In other words, 
this world is all there is. That's how many people see life, and therefore what you do is you, you give all your energy to ensuring that you enjoy this present moment. As far as many people are concerned, all religions, Christianity included, are mocked by the hard white smile of the skull. You're dead, that's it. So now is the time to enjoy. Now is the time to make the most of life. Haven't you heard that? Well, this change of perspective, which Paul emphasizes here in verse 18, is, I think, a very important clue to Christian living, Christian discipleship, the seen and the unseen. Remember Jesus in the Beatitudes, when he spoke and gave his manifesto of the kingdom of God. And he, someone put it like this, it's almost as if Jesus had, had crept into life's window and swapped all the price tags around. So that those things which were of great value are now of little value. And those things which were of little value are now of great value. Jesus is upside down kingdom. And that's really what Paul is getting at when he writes this. He says, what do you value most? What do you count as being really important? He says, you should learn to value the unseen, the eternal. That, as I say, is part of our Christian discipleship. That will help put all of our troubles in perspective. Uh, these troubles, including our physical frailties, which some of us experience, uh, all of us, including uh, 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 younger people too, all of us, are in that sense decaying as a result of sin. That's an inevitable trend as I've already implied. But that demonstrates that what really matters is inward renewal and eternal glory. What really matters is we fix our eyes not on the seen, but on the unseen. I mentioned earlier that uh, one of my uh, colleagues who's still on the road and working hard is John Scott, who's now 85, a few days ago, and still writing books, and, and next week hopefully travelling uh, off to help in one of our little Langham preaching programs. Um, he, was eight when I, he was 80, I went to his birthday party, and the person who was chairing the uh, event said, well, when someone reaches the age of 80, you normally say, what on earth can we give them for a birthday present? They've got everything. What can we give them? Do you know that thing? And uh, they said, whereas in the case of John, he's got absolutely nothing, and we don't spoil it. And it's more or less true. He lives in a very humble way, just a small flat in London, hardly anything to his name, because his value system is different from the value system of this world. Now, we can have possessions, I don't want to be misunderstood. But what is significant about that older man is he's very clear about what really matters. He's seeing the unseen. He's living for eternity, not for this present moment. Same with Paul. You know, in the world's estimation, Paul was a failure. He was converted in the course of a brilliant career, Yet he counted all of those things of little worth compared to the task of serving Jesus Christ. And all of the sufferings, all of the struggles, all the journeys, all the hardships, well, this world would have said the guy was crazy to live life like that. But in Paul's estimation, it was very different. He used a different accounting system, as we know from the book of Philippians. So for us, one day we will experience something that will make all of the things the world considers valuable look utterly worthless. I wonder if you're living in that life, the life of that future, the king and the answer. So, there is the reality of eternity. Three contrasts in that little section. Secondly, just into chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, I've called it On Our Way Home. On Our Way Home. Two years ago, some of you may have heard the, uh, I think there were the Reef Lectures, they were given by a professor of medicine from Newcastle, uh, his name is Tom Kirkwood, Professor Tom Kirkwood. And uh, it was called The End of Age. 
and they were advertised by the BBC in this way, you don't have to die, ageing is neither inevitable nor necessary. Pretty bold statement, and of course, um, it's true we are heading in that direction. Um, the fastest growing segment of the population, the Beulah, I can tell, will always have a job to do, because the fastest growing segment of the population, do you know what it is? It's those who are 100 years and above. I think that's the fastest growing sector these days. In other words, um, they're, they're called the robust elderly. All of us are growing older and living longer. And it's true, medicine and science are helping us in that direction. But, and let me put on screen something from another uh, professor, Professor of Theoretical Physics in New York, who wrote a book about uh, the end of age. Anyone who's ever stared in a mirror and watched the inexorable spread of wrinkles, sagging features and graying hair has yearned for perpetual youth at some point. No matter how rich, powerful, glamorous or influential you might be, to confront aging is to confront the reality of your mortality. And that's what Paul now talks about in these verses. As I said, perhaps for the first time Paul had begun to confront his own mortality, his own weakness. He'd been close to death on many occasions and having experienced those pressures in the sufferings I've referred to, maybe he was beginning to conclude that he would die before Jesus came back. But that idea of his own imminent death did not paralyse him. It didn't fill him with dread. In fact, quite the opposite, as this section shows. Let me just highlight three things. First, he says, we will have new bodies. And as a tent maker, one illustration immediately comes to Paul's mind. Now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. In other words, having been through a great deal of physical suffering, he knew that his physical body was frail and vulnerable. One day he said, just going to be folded up like a tent. You know, at the end of a camping weekend, you just flop the tent down. Well, that's exactly how it is with our bodies, Paul said. One day it will be gone. But, and he's absolutely certain, you'll notice in chapter 5, verse 1, you could underline the word, we know, that's written with emphasis, we know that this frail tent is going to be replaced by something much more secure, much more lasting. He says it's going to be replaced there by something designed and built by God himself, an eternal house in heaven. In fact, in his first letter to Corinthians, he'd already spoken about this idea. In 1 Corinthians 15, he gives a good deal of time to talking about the resurrection of Jesus and therefore the consequent resurrection of everybody who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're united to Jesus, you too will be raised to newness of life. You will also have a resurrection body. And he says, this is God's work, you'll notice verse 1, not built with human hands. So maybe still in this letter, Paul is talking to the the Corinthian false teachers who didn't really expect a true physical resurrection. Paul is saying, no, we're not going to be in heaven floating around like some disembodied spirit. We will not be found naked, he says there in verse 3. I don't know what the image you have in heaven. Sometimes even amongst Christians, you get the impression they think that heaven is uh, sitting on a cloud wearing a heavenly negligee uh, as if it's it's very ethereal. No, Paul says here it's very robust. Instead, we will be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Secondly, we will no longer face the pains of our mortality. Notice how he describes that. He says this fragile tent will be replaced with a permanent building. That's one image. But then he he uses in verse 4 another very graphic image. He says it's rather like a large fish 
swallowing a smaller one. Our mortality will be swallowed up by life. I think this is a wonderful aspect of this uh, uh, prospect that Paul gives us on our way home. That while scientific progress definitely does lengthen our life, it definitely does improve its quality. You can have hormone therapy or organ replacement. All of these things can do something to extend and uh, improve life now. But nevertheless, as we grow older, the limitations, the inevitable limitations of this world and our own life confront us more and more with increasing intensity. But there will come a day, said Paul, when those limitations will be done away with, when this mortality will be swallowed up by life. And once again, Paul is providing a very important perspective on the present, on present suffering and on the present reality. We cannot escape the burdens of our mortal life, but we know that this mortality will be swallowed up and in our new home, we will experience the fullness of the life of the Spirit. That's the completion of this inner renewal that we looked at in chapter 4 and verse 16. And thirdly, we now experience restlessness. It's very significant, I think, in the way in which Paul writes this. He says it twice, in fact. Paul refers to the fact that, meanwhile, we groan. You'll notice that in verse 2, and then again in verse 4. We groan and are burdened. In fact, it's very similar language to the language Paul uses in Romans 8, where he talks about we're joining with the whole of creation, which is groaning, waiting for the day when Jesus returns and everything will be summed up to find its unity and its headship in Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, we groan. In other words, until that future day, there is a restlessness that is an inevitable part of the tension of living in the present world while also being a citizen of that world to come, living life in these two dimensions which I refer to. We long for the day when we will be clothed with our new bodies. And that restlessness, which we've sung about, and which many of us identify with, that restlessness is part of the evidence of the Spirit's work. As we anticipate the day when there'll be no more suffering and no more tears and no more darkness. Well, to underline these certainties, he gives us two very strong assurances before I come to my last point. The two strong assurances are these. First, God had this in mind all along. We'll see what he says in verse 5. Now, it is God who made us for this very purpose. Again, in the way in which he wrote it, it's very emphatic. You could underline the word God in red in your Bible. God prepared us. God who began the good work in us will complete it. God who brought us to faith in Jesus Christ is the one who will ensure that all of us complete this journey, arrive home as we should. Nothing in Paul's experience Nothing in your experience or mine will deflect God from fulfilling this purpose, this eternal purpose which he had in mind all along, right from the beginning of creation. God made us for this very purpose of an eternity with him. And the second strong assurance is God has given us the sign. You'll notice in verse 5, this well-known phrase, he has given us spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The Holy Spirit, as you know, is the first instalment in our lives of what will then follow in eternity. So the proof that all that Paul is writing about about the future is not just wishful thinking or whistling in the dark. The proof of his reality is that the Holy Spirit is within us and amongst us as God's people. The first instalment of that wonderful future 
that God has in mind for us. Um, the other day I was travelling on British Rail and I, I happened to go to one of the carriages where they serve coffee to you rather than you going to the buffet. And I, I sat uh, uh, in, in the chair and uh, I said, yes, I'd like some coffee for the first time. He gave me the plastic cup and uh, the milk and the sugar and I gave him oh, six pounds or eight, ten pounds or whatever it is and pay for coffee these days. And um, then I had to wait because another steward was bringing the coffee. And so I sat there with my plastic beaker and my milk and my sugar and I thought of his first because that's the reality that uh, we now have a first installment and I'm anticipating something greater soon to come. Except what Paul is describing is much more reliable than the British Rail's coffee. His point is that the experience now of the Holy Spirit amongst us and within us is the guarantee of all that God has promised for those who have been born again by the Spirit. It's the guarantee of that future home. The presence of the Holy Spirit is God's assurance to us of that sure and certain future. The Holy Spirit is God's signpost to that future. He empowers us to live our lives as we should, even in the weaknesses that we feel. He demonstrates the reality of Jesus Christ to us. He shows us the reality of God's love. His work is a signpost for all that Paul is describing. Well, it's relatively easy, I think, for Christians and very easy for preachers like me to talk about all of these wonderful things about the future until you confront death yourself, either the death of a relative or a friend or perhaps you confront your own imminent death. And at that point, I think, it's very important that these strong assurances that Paul gives us are pushed down from our heads and into our hearts. They become the reality by which we live, the reality of eternity, the story of being on our way home. I remember David Watson many years ago when I was younger, who was dying of cancer. He wrote a very moving little book called Fear No Evil, in which he said this, and I think I may have it on the screen. Can you have it, Andrew? For many years I've been telling people that I'm not afraid to die. I know the reality of Christ in my own experience. He has made God real in my life and has promised one day he will welcome me into his home in heaven. At the same time, I realise the time has now come to place the whole of my life into God's hands once again and to renew my trust in him for all that lay ahead of me. And there was a man who believed these truths that we are rehearsing this morning but in the cold, uh, coldness and darkness of two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning waking up knowing he was dying had to make sure that reality was pushed down and that he trusted God for everything which lay ahead of him. May God do the same for us. Well, finally, let's come to the last section, verses 6 to 10. I've called it Home or Away. Home or Away. Because whenever the New Testament talks about the future, it always makes sure there is a feedback to the present, as I've already implied. Many of the books, which are quite demanding, which talk about the future, the book of Revelation, for example, or Peter's writings, are written to Christians who are suffering. In other words, your perspective on the future transforms your present reality. And that's exactly what Paul does here. In this section, final section, he continues to describe the future, but he does so by drawing the implications for the present. I'll just mention them briefly because they lead on to what I'd like to say this evening. First of all, he says, we live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith now. First seven. Because Paul knew that one day he would die and he would be with Christ. And as long as he lived in this body, he would be, as he said, away from the Lord. So what did he want to do? Well, he would rather move house. 
He would rather go to be with the Lord. But to write in that way, as he does in verse 6, I'd rather be, uh, uh, as we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord, and he does again in verse 8. To write in that way, my twins might uh, leave the, the impression that now he wasn't enjoying the Lord's presence. So he deliberately emphasizes, I may be away from the Lord as far as my physical existence is concerned, but I live by faith, not by sight. I anticipate those future realities now. We live by faith. Paul doesn't expect everything about that future to be realized now. He's aware that more is to come, but he, by faith, can anticipate the reality of the Lord's presence with him here and now. Some things are not yet visible, but we live our lives in the light of this phrase. We live by faith, not by sight. That's exactly what we saw in chapter 4, verse 18. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. That's the first thing we need to do. First implication. Live by faith. Secondly, we aim to please him. Verse 9. So, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. You see what Paul is saying? If that future is right, if we're going to be with Jesus for eternity, then now we live our lives, aiming to please him. All other human ambitions are submitted to this primary goal in our lives. We make it our goal to please Jesus Christ. We'll say more about that this week. And thirdly, finally, how we live now matters. Do you notice how this section concludes in verse 10? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the deeds done while in the body, whether good or bad. And here Paul talks about one other aspect of our future. He describes our judgment. And in doing so, he builds a bridge into the next section, which I'd like to talk about this evening. That each one may receive what is due him for the deeds done while in the body. Well, this judgment which Paul describes is not meant to cloud the hope which he's just been describing. It's not meant to dampen our joy at the prospect of seeing Jesus. But it's there, this reality that all of us will face the judgment seat of Christ, is why he's a Christian. That judgment will not affect our future destiny. If we know Jesus Christ, we are absolutely secure, as I've tried to emphasize many, many times in what I've said this morning. Knowing Jesus, being united to Jesus, means therefore we will be raised with Jesus. We will enjoy that home in heaven. We are on that secure foundation. But, this verse, therefore we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, is actually a reminder that there will be a judgment on our stewardship. In other words, how we've lived our lives. That's going to be tested. And I think that's a very sober reality. That as he talks about that future, he deliberately draws the implication. The way you live now matters. Don't live casually. Live your life in the light of that future day. In the light of that judgment. In the light of meeting Jesus Christ. Be a good steward of your life. Give your life for something that's worthwhile. Live your life now for eternity. Again, I'll say more about that verse this evening, but let me conclude with an example, because you'll be tempted, I think, to imagine, well, Paul must mean we've got to be energetically working in all kinds of ways, but you know, I just can't do that. I'm restricted. Maybe some of you who are listening to me will say there's hardly anything I can do. Let me mention my father-in-law once again. He's lived in, in our house for 11 years. He hasn't been outside of his room for six years. And he sits day by day with a whole pile of missionary prayer letters and news from around the world and he prays and he prays and he prays. 
By contrast, I'm in a different continent almost every month. I have, by God's grace, and the wonderful privilege of meeting God's people in different countries, of being involved in many, many different things. And I sometimes say to a congregation, who do you think is achieving more for the cause of world mission? Jonathan Lamb, hearing around the world, or Ben Taylor, sitting in one room, day after day, praying. And I think I know the answer. Now, that this man, restricted as he is, with hardly any mobility, is totally committed to pray for God's people, to pray for God's work worldwide, to invest in what really matters. So irrespective of the gifts we have, or the available uh, resources that we might have, or the opportunities, God calls all of us to live our lives now in the light of that future reality. I give one final quotation, which is an unusual one, which is from James Galway. Some of you know James Galway, the Irish flautist. And he was in a near, uh, an accident um, not long ago, a road traffic accident in which he nearly lost his life. And uh, I read in a music magazine how this impacted him, having nearly lost his life. He said, I decided that henceforward I would play every concert, cut every record, give every TV program as though it were my life. I've come to understand that it is never possible to guess what might happen next. And that the important thing is to make sure that every time I play my sleep, my performance will be as near perfection and full of true music as God intended, and that I shall not be remembered for a poor performance. Now that worthy uh, expression, I think, is exactly what Paul says. I make it my goal to please him. Everything about my life now, I want to be honouring to God himself, and I want, therefore, to meet Jesus Christ and hear him say, well done, good and faithful. Let's pray together.